Steve Kantner has been a close friend ever since we did a couple of television shows together three decades ago. He's smart, fun, and incredibly creative. How else would a man that calls himself the land captain maintain a healthy livelihood guiding out of his car? On today's podcast, we cover the vibrant life he led fishing off beaches, piers, and the great Tamiami Trail. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls and Whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Steve? You're a good pal, man. It's great to have you on the show. Likewise. We go Likewise. way back. My pleasure. We do. 20-some years, maybe a little bit more. I mean, the first time we I heard from and of you was from uh, John Glorio. We did a couple TV shows Indeed, together. we did. Tamiami Trail, we're in the grass carps. You wrote the history chapter on my tarpon book, A Passion for Tarpon. Oh, that's right. Um, you know, we caught big jacks together. We caught tarpon together. You've been a great pal for a long time, and we've I am pompano I, together. Yeah, we have. Beach. Um, you know, we've your, your spectrum is really vast in so many ways. Uh, you're a fisherman. Uh, you've evolved through fishing in the spectrum of fishing. Uh, you're a great writer. You've authored five books, and I'd just love to hear your story today. And I think that we'll get started by saying, you know. You are 74, you know. How is life now for you? Because you're dealing with Parkinson's. Uh, you have some some shit going down. You yeah. know, I hate to use that word, but... No. Uh, and life, bipolar disorder. And yeah. frankly, uh, my attitude is I never looked at these things as disabilities. One of them, the bipolar thing, is a double-edged sword. There is very little argument that it also kind of jars creativity and... I can remember stuff now that I couldn't remember 10 years ago. Really? Yeah, and of course, you know, the older you get, you could kind of, you know, memory becomes malleable. You can change it to suit what you want. That's that's not true. But yeah, uh, it's I've heard this, people who became disabled later in life, someone who went blind later on, it's like their other senses became more acute. In fact, right. in this new book that I'm writing, I have two stories that deal with guiding officially legally blind people. And one was a, uh, a head of a geology department at a Ivy League university. He had a, a daughter who lived over here in Fort Pierce, I mean, or, uh, Fort Myers 
and called. She said, I've been reading this stuff and I spent a lot of my life writing far too much magazine crap. She said, could you take, he's pretty near blind. Do you think you could take this guy out and catch him a fish? She says, I've read these things to him. You know, and that was like a flag in front of a boy. You bet your sweet ass I can. And he came down here and he was a lovely guy. One of the, I call it the ancient regime. He showed up, he was wearing khakis and he had a Stetson hat and everything else. He couldn't, I mean, he could maybe see his hand in front of him, but did a little determination down by the water and I wanted to see his familiarity with fly gear. And he was from really the old school and the machinations and flex patterns of bamboo and lines, silk lines and rolling in the air and stuff. He had no equal. This is, I got something to work with. So, but th this was a neophyte, a first time fly fisherman? Oh, no, no. This guy had fly fished his whole life. So, he, but he just became blind. He was blind. And could I take him to that fishing that you saw? Right and catch him some fish, uh, I'll cut to the chase at the end here. Uh, he ended up with actually eight or nine, five to eight pounds snook and a tarpon on fly. And I'd say, Mr. G, I'll call him that, not his name. And I had him, uh, we got him over, stepped him over the, you know, the aluminum siding and got him down, found a place that had a little room for him to bring that fly rod by, turn him a quarter of a turn, did this and that. This. This old fart could shoot a loop so tight it put it in a mouse ear. I mean, he was really good, wonderful guy. And I'd say, okay, Mr. G, get your tip in the water, point your rod where you think the line is, now start stripping. I'd say, he, here he comes, and I'd see the flash. I'd say, he's got it, strip hard, and he'd have his tip down, couldn't see anything, you know. Yeah, and, that's the that's the kiss of death for most people tarpon fishing. They see that big bite and they rip it right out of their face. Oh yeah, you know it's like okay, close your eyes, keep stripping. I mean, ultimately that would be for neophytes tarpon fishing. Watching that fish bite the fly, it's hard not to rip it out. He, of their right, face. and he maybe he had an advantage, but it was a wonderful. He had a great time, and I used to carry a couple of beers in the car sometimes for my customers, but. You know, they usually, it was like in water or whatever, sure. but no, no. <laughs> Two of us were, you know, toasting the Chinese Revolution and hooting and hollering <laughs> when we met up with his sister over there at that. You remember with the, the, the big microwave tower there at the Everglades Welcome Station? Right. He was howling. And I had another story uh, where my wife owns property on a lake in Wisconsin. We had a guy who lived across the lake an old guy, and I'll, I'll say his name is Jenkins. And he was a long time, he only fished, he also at losing his vision, but he also was a long time Atlantic salmon fisherman who used to go up to New Brunswick and fish the Miramichi. Mm -hmm. And the guides loved him. And you know, Atlantic salmon fish, in the way most of these guys do it, a measured line across stream, let the fly swing, do it a couple times, take two steps downstream, pick it up, do it again. You know, and I guess, you know, the real zen to it is why does this fish that's not really feeding, why am I catching him? And that's, incidentally, that's the reason that the great Edward Hewitt quit fishing for him. He wouldn't fish for a fish. <laughs> he didn't know why it bit the lure. 
And uh, anyway, this guy Jenkins would go out at night. He was blind as a bat, but he had a, these big, big fronted Midwestern canoes and he'd go paddling out. And uh, this lake that Vicky's family had a cabin on, it was this deep, oligotrophic, crystal clear water, 70 feet deep um, lake uh, that they had a fisheries committee and they used to import Scamania steelheads from out in Washington state. And these things would, oh, they'd get to about four or five pounds before they started developing Milton Rowe. And of course, a couple of years of that and resorbing it, they'd die. So, I mean, you might as well at that point in the game, I mean, you could keep one. But he used to go out and he would hear this. He would hear the splash. And right in the middle, in, in late August and early September, uh, they also used to import minnows to the lake. And there would be, you get a glass calm surface and there'd be a, a million, million of these little minis on the surface. And all of a sudden, one of these four or five pound steelheads would come up on the surface and run in a circle and bloop, 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 you know, like a, what do they call the ones? A gulper like on uh, Hebgen Lake. Hebgen Lake, right. Yeah, and that's a whole nother story. But he would throw this little streamer right into it and start stripping it, and he'd catch them in the blind. And I, you weren't allowed to use a motor on that lake, but I had a 10-foot pram with an electric on it, and I used to, I never wanted to go crowd him, but I used to watch him. And he was, he was a wonderful guy, and he had, he had done it all. I mean, he shot traps, he'd shot ducks, you know, right. everything. And uh, he wasn't about to let the fact that uh, he was losing one of his senses get in the way of his uh, sporting pursuits. Yeah, no, uh, you know, the, the a passionate heart can still do a lot of things. Yeah, if absolutely. You if you love something, if you care, you're gonna, you're not gonna give it up. No, absolutely. No. That's why they make topical testosterone. <laughs> well, for the Injectables people, injectables too. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say for the people that don't know about Steve Cantner, I mean, you're really known for being a land captain, guiding off of the shore, off the land, off of bridges. Um, but I just got done reading your book, um, The Ultimate Guide to Fishing South Florida on Foot, and you were talking about a guy by the name of Rocky Weinstein. Yeah, or Weinstein. Yeah, he was the first original land captain. Um, so it was said, uh, Charlie Waterman used to tell me that they said that he was, uh, he lived, uh, in, uh, Chukaluski, I believe, or near Chukaluski. And the thing about him was they say he became a land guide because he couldn't read a chart. And he used to have all kinds of things. He used to go around, he had a deal where he used to sell, uh, he used to wrap up blanks and sell them to people and, this is back in the 50s or whatever. And the Tamiami Trail was a lot newer then. And there was a a group of devotees who used to go out there and fish who really loved that, who'd whip over from Miami. And he catered to that bunch. But yeah, that's Weinstein. He heard, the last I heard about him was, I say this respectfully and I didn't see it, but... Uh, I don't know. He was going out with one of these commercial fishermen's ex-wives or daughters or something like that. And 
it pissed him off and ended up having to move to Miami or whatever, where right. he spent the rest of his life over living in Miami Beach or something. I don't know. Right. Tell me a little bit about the Tamiami Trail, because at one point it was really a hot place to fish. I mean, um, Chico used to go out there a lot. Uh, Stu Apt, I think, met Ted Williams uh, while they were out there fishing for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Norman a lot Duncan. Of I'm sorry, a lot of Norman, Norman Duncan. Uh, tell me about the halcyon years of the Tamiami Trail. I, I personally, I, I think there is a fair to middle in chance we might see that again. A lot of what's happened over there has been disruptions to the natural flow of water. But at one time, first of all, the the creeks were wider. Okay, that's something that Chico told me to since silted in and everything else. But if a, a lot of the problem with why you don't have fish anymore over there is because the resource has been so devastated. Mm-hmm. I mean, you take a look at places where we never used to keep a fish to eat or anything over there, but you you look at what happened. I mean, it was nothing to catch 50 or 60 snook on a fly. But, you know, there was a time when that was legal and people used to do it. I remember right. John Donnell, pictures of his father with the trunk of the car filled with them. And they used to call them, I forget what the, what back then. Uh, soap fish? Or soap so- fish. Right. That's what it was. Yeah. Right. And who knew? Nobody knew about skinning them. Right. That was it's the because difference. they tasted like soap when you kept the skin on and you right. got a lot of iodine. Exactly right. Yeah. It's almost like redfish was unedible until they realized that the blackened redfish became such a hot commodity, it decimated the, uh, the redfish uh, yeah. population. Yeah, Paul Prudhomme. I remember that. It's, yes, we. It was bad Paul Prudhomme. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you something about that. I took the cure with those things early on. I had a little, a little shit boat, a, little, a couple of V-hulls. And we took one down to Flamingo one time when the limit was 10. And I had a big deep freeze in my in my kitchen. And we caught 30 of them one time. And uh, two friends and I were up all night long cleaning them. And all it took with them is to break the gut cavity open a couple of times. And, oh, God, it worse than cleaning an angelfish. Just awful. Angelfish are bad too. Oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've oh never... no, they're that stink inside. If you bust the gut, right? Oh, it's oh. interesting because uh, when we're you know quartering elk, uh, and you start slicing you know the hide off, and every once in a while you might get a little bit too sharp of an edge and kind of tap that stomach lighting. But uh, it's a very distinctive smell. For sure, but I've never <laughs> noticed a fish having an awful smell. Oh, oh, it's 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 like, it's like a, a what do you call it? A, like a rose bowl where the turds are bubbling up. It's just a horrible smell. <laughs> I don't rem- never experienced that, but I'm going to take your word for no, it. No, that listen, that that took care of me at. Uh, so the, so so let's go back to the Tamiami Trail real, real okay. quickly. So you, on, like on a good day, you could go out and catch 50, 60 snook. How big were they? On a really good day, you could catch that many, and I, I have a, a reference point to that. One day with my wife, disinterested wife, sitting in the car reading a novel, I went through two rolls of slide film. This is when we used to shoot slides, and a slide thing was 36 plus one, depending. Sometimes right. you'd have a little. And I shot 72 images, and there were very few repeats, and the fish were from eight to... 
18 pounds. What I'd do, it was a it was a day like this. It was a northeaster blowing, and it was a rain. This is not a northeaster, I know, but there was a rain. When somebody drive by, I was fishing an eight or a nine way. I'd simply I'd be nonchalant, scratching my ear, and have the rod pointed at the fish, and the line would be, you know, from here to Istanbul down the canal. But I didn't want the people to see right, what, what I was doing. doing. And we'd bring them back. And, so you're not in a boat. You're fishing right off the road. Right. And I have used a canoe there on occasion, which um, smoke and mirrors, you know, it's uh, gimmick fishing. Any instances G- where- Gimmick in, in what way? Fishing out oh, of the Oh, you know, let's, uh, the more equipment, bring this and do that. And oh, we've got to, you know. And, and all the this. fishing was no better out of a canoe than it was on the road? Generally not. No, there were places I could get to by canoe that I could not access on foot. Right. There were, like where Highway 92 goes off the trail down to to Marco Island, there were lakes, lagos, I call them, that go back there. And I had nicknames for them. And sometimes you'd go and you'd push your way through mangroves and lift stuff up over your head. And you'd be so far back. You couldn't hear yourself fart for 30 years. I mean, you were really, really <laughs> back in there. And you'd see these big cruiser snook that had never, never been molested. And if you threw the right fly, uh, they would hit. And God, they'd wrap around everything from here to Naples. But, but I, would, I would gravitate to a canoe if that's what I was saying. That's what I away. did. That's what I used to do. But not generally on the trail because... You'd have to, with a canoe, you had to unload the canoe and launch the canoe. Right. And the time, the clock was ticking. So what I would do is, first of all, I used to plot what I was going to do over there. Number one rule was temperature. Back when the weather channel was legible and you could read this stuff, what I would look, if the night before I was going fishing at 7 o'clock at night, the air temperature at Naples was below 70 degrees, particularly if it had held there for a while, I'd try to change the trip, okay, until the wind swung around to the southeast. If I could not, I'd go over there. The first thing I would look for, there's a number of reporting stations, and you had to find for the various places I'd stop, like this one. The one place I used to stop right by the Everglades Welcome Station was four hours later than... um, What's it down there at Everglades City? Uh, there's a reporting station there. I forget what it is, but it'd be four hours later. In other words, mm-hmm. if it was right. low there at noontime, you, you were waiting for low at four. At four, and what you really wanted to do is you wanted to pick times of maximum tidal movement, and you wanted to give it a couple hours to start racing out. Snook fed with much better in falling tide where. The tarpon were, you know, it didn't matter as much. But that's what we liked. And you wanted to see, and you could get kind of an idea. And I did this a couple years ago, two years ago. I went down there. I had this uh, lady from my neighborhood drive me down there. She went to bird watch. And, uh, you know, I wanted to see what uh, what I could leave swimming away with its gills. <laughs> I'm only kidding. But... <laughs> But we had to, we were we were eating sandwiches over there at that that what was it the uh, that hamburger joint there right on the corner that uh, I forget the name of it one of these uh, oh that's all the way over it's at the junction where you go from uh, 
Alligator Alley into uh, Everglades City in the road from Tammy yeah, and the Trail yeah. goes to it was, Miami. It was a, I forget the name of a, a sub shop. There was a subway. That's what it was, right in the corner, right next to where that big tower, that big microwave tower went up. But I went, I went, I had to go back and forth, you know, and waiting for the time to pass, watching for the, and all of a sudden, it got low enough. It started going out. It got low enough. And here you could come, you'd see the birds marching by the thousands out of that back from, you know, from behind the sawgrass. And they'd set up right outside. There was like a zillion birds in the space the size of this desk. And they're there fighting with each other and grabbing stuff and everything else. And as these minnows flushed into the main canal, we called these things runouts. These snook were just just bashing them up and down. And of course, there's where we used. And in my case, uh, let me kind of preface. If I were to recommend a fly to someone who fished there who didn't, wasn't aware of my favorite pattern, I would recommend a gray marabou muddler, say size eight or whatever. Uh, and you know, the big trick was to quarter it a little bit downstream, land it right up and, and twitch that thing off. And these fish were rushing into the shallows to grab it. And that's essentially, that was the key to my success. I made a living there. I had an actual job. Did you have to wear high boots? Did you have any run-ins with moccasins or rattlesnakes? Oh, or I, I got bit through one one time. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, it's, uh, I wasn't sure. I went back to grab something for a customer and I felt this pam and I thought, wow, I... I my shin bone against a rock. But a couple, you know, 10 minutes later, I feel this, and I feel this thing kind of climbing up my leg and I got home. I had to go to a, a, a Christmas party that night and my Vicky had bought me these, she worked for at a Marine store at the time and she'd bought me these uh, silly ski boots or, or sailing boots. And this thing, all you had to do is look at it. It's like somebody stuck a fork through it. I mean, you didn't have to be uh, Albert Einstein to figure out what happened here. And this thing had blown up like a balloon. And I'm like, and the one thing that I knew where I'd gotten into into bad water, Vicky didn't drink then. And I like You the, drove her to drinking? <laughs> yeah, I drove her to <laughs> Yeah, no. But I, we bought a bottle of... I think it was Jim Beam or something, a bottle of bourbon along. And it was one of these BYOB parties or whatever, you know, like. Bring uh, your own Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, but anyway, so to make a long story short, I put a list in my mouth. It was like drinking carbotetrachloride. I, I couldn't believe it. And I went outside. They had a screened in patio and there was nobody out there. And I, I couldn't believe this. And I took another little, I mean, quarter of a shot and put it in my mouth. It was like, oh my, like drinking ammonia water. And I, I spit it through the, through the screen. I didn't try to drink anymore. And I had a, a friend of mine, a late friend of mine was a dermatologist who lived in my building, who also used to work at, among other places, the VD clinic. And also the, uh, he just, uh, he volunteered for the health department. He said, how long ago were you, did, did you bit? I said, I don't know, 24 hours? He said, asshole. He said, there's nothing I can do. He said, if it was a moccasin, it was a dirty bite. Well, it wasn't a moccasin. 
And I didn't go in and get the antivenin or anything, but Arostegui later told me, uh, and he used to, I mean, he was occupied the chair of what in emergency medicine somewhere. He said that fact that you couldn't drink, it, you were bitten by a rattlesnake because they have a certain character in their venom that um, it, 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 it absolutely reverses your sense of taste. And that's where I knew it from. Interesting. Yeah. But, but there were no other uh, repercussions? Oh, of, oh no. It was, the... it was sore for like a week. And... Well, that's what I'm saying. It was sore, but you didn't get really sick? Just bad. No, no, no. I did. Pain. I have been. Uh... You'd think by a rattlesnake you might even die. Well, that's if I would have gotten like a big, a, a, a major reptilian emergency is a, is a full strike from a, from a, you know, like in the calf, from a full-grown diamondback rattlesnake, where it's like somebody punching, you know, something like this, and it's right. deep. You lose the, your leg or yeah. The other, the other is a carl snake. Now, the one thing that this guy mustn't—he bit me right on top of my shin or my ankle bone there, and had there been a lot of venom, and I believe they can control that, I would have had necrosis. There would have been a lot of there would have been black rot and stuff. Mm-hmm. And one thing I did have, I two things I had, I was bitten twice, um, possibly because of my bad vision. I couldn't see what it was by a brown recluse spider. And I saw the one crawling across my knee and I was taking <clears throat> pictures of stuff. And I got zapped and it felt like pow, like he got shot with a pellet gun. And I never gave it a second thought. And then I got home and, you know, I sat down, I had a easy chair or whatever. And I went to sit down and all of a sudden my knee came out and I fell right in the ground. I had a lump, a bump. God, I don't know. I mean, it's half the size of a tennis ball. Mm. But there was, what it is, is uh, it's it's what's called a loxacelic poison. And it rushes down to the bone and it cinches off all the blood cells or the blood vessels. And then it goes to work dissolving. Oh, interesting. Yeah, whereas like with a black widow, which is a a necrotic poison, I mean that, uh, or a, a neurotoxin, that, you know, all of a sudden you start shaking. Right. Or a coral snake. And I I had a friend of mine who was bitten by one. They were bitten by one. They He wasn't sure if he was bitten because they just grab you, you know, take a little like that. And they took it to, I'm going to say, your hospital up here, there's one, there, there are two of them. And they they took it to the one in a pillowcase and all the docs are out and everything. They said, are you sure you're bitten? Are you sure you're bitten? Let's see it because that's a major right. medical emergency. And he was around in there and the damn thing came and grabbed him and then he was bitten. And then they had a quick get a tube in him. Sure. Yeah, and just keep you alive for an hour or two, then you're all right. Right. I'd like to hear about your pier fishing. I mean, that was prolific. Oh yeah, all the stuff you did off the piers. Whoa. You know, look at the top of the uh, the program here. We're talking about you know your land captain, yeah, uh, which had a, a big spectrum. But I think uh, fishing off of piers in the early years was really a viable resource to catch fish. It's unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. When I spoke to these guys at that. Sport fisherman of Broward. I had guys who actually remembered me 
who were younger, but they were young kids when I came back out of the service and was still catching. I mean, I don't want to. This is not ish, ish, me, me, me. No, but me. it is about you. I want to hear these uh, fish and you I could. Caught. By the time I was like 21 years old or when I got drafted or whatever, I'd landed like 80 or 90 tarpon off a pier, you know, in a Centaur Pacific. And we used to, we'd fill them with, initially we used to fill it with the, the reel with 12-pound Andy or, or Mason's line, which was, hell, it was as big around as your finger. You'd only get mm -hmm. 100 some yards on there. But we got good at it. And the original pier was a small, you know, and if you stayed ahead of the fish, you could steer it. And one of our guys... How do you stay ahead of fish on a pier? Simply running and trying to steer the head. In other words, he's trying to go out this way. You can... If you think, oh, running down the pier. Yeah, 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 about. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And where is this pier? Down by Fort Lauderdale? Or? Yeah, this was, it's still, I believe, at the end of 50th Street or Commercial Boulevard. But in the old days, there's an interesting history. I, I knew Tom Anglin. I'm sure he's been gone for years. But he was to fishing what Sugar Ray Leonard was to boxing or perhaps you skiing. And he was, he had his hands, he had forearms like Popeye. And he could hold a big spinning rod out in front of him. His hands would blur so fast and his feet could go. And I guess I got good at it. I couldn't shoot a basket when I was in high school, but I, I loved this stuff and I learned to do it. Are you a pretty good athlete, um, generally speaking? Well, you know, I only really became interested in it with um, later in life. I, I took an interest in physical culture, bodybuilding. I was in, when I was in my 30s and 40s, I was right. a power lifter. In fact, when I was in my 50s, I had about like a 1,200 pound total. And now, I mean, it was only a couple of years ago. I mean, I was squatting three something or other just for, I I'd spent more time worrying about hypertrophy than the hyperplasia. But right. now I do stuff just to make sure. I do the bands, I do all kinds of sure. movement, stretching, that kind of stuff. And I recognize it's also fitness. Yeah, but uh, it's fitness, but it's stationary. Yeah. So on a pier, it sounds like you've got to have great dexterity, you know, with yeah, your yeah. hands and your movement and running. Absolutely. Was that, a, was that a natural progression for you? Was it easy? I don't know. I just liked you it. Just I, I just fell in love with it. And right. It was one thing led to another. Right. And I, you know what? I remember when I first saw a saltwater fish, I had gotten injured in, in Europe. My ski racing career ended. I was living in Southern California, and I would go out on the end of a pier yeah. uh, in Newport Beach in Corona Del Mar area. And that was fascinating to me to see the wave of uh, bait fish and, and the way the bonita came in. And I could see why the pier fishing had its own appeal, where you don't want to be in a boat, you don't, don't want to be on land. You want to be a pier fisherman. Oh, absolutely. And that, and that was you. Absolutely. That you were static, and you had to you had to read the, the tea leaves. You had to know when the fish were coming. You had to be there. You had to be rigged right. Absolutely. And what were the key fish? I mean, obviously, it was a seasonal thing, but what was your... I mean, I know that you guys caught sailfish off the piers, too. Some of them, yeah. Yeah, in fact, yeah, six of them in one day off the Lake Worth. That I was not involved with that. I... 
Closest I ever came to a sailfish, one swam off a hook and was swimming down the side, and I free gaffed it and brought it up. But I, <laughs> I caught, we caught tunas. I caught blackfin tuna. And, off the piers. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's a, a great statement for the, uh, the state of the fishery back then. Oh, there was all sorts of stuff. It was unbelievable. This Anglins, and it was a little stub. The whole deal about that, that was built in the 1940s by the Anglin family because what they wanted to do was ultimately attract a lot of people to this community that they had bought the land underneath and they were going to develop it. And they had a they had a motel there, Anglin's Mel Sarah and some other stuff. And they, they had a, a, attracted essentially a nice a group of uh, tourists, return people who'd come every year. But the pier, there was a point where the pier kind of got at odds with the city fathers because these kids were catching sharks and walking them up on the beach. And somebody perceived that instead of this being a novelty, that uh, somebody was, we're not going to move there, Mildred. There are sharks in those waters and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, talk to me about... What kind of the fraternity you saw? Who was there? You know, besides the political as- aspect with the city, who were your buddies? How many guys were out there? Oh, fishing I still some of these basis? guys are still still pals of mine. I mean, um, I mean. So did you go after work? Was this your work? Yeah, you yeah, fish? that and and on through when I was. Well, of course, I fished anglins. Ultimately, I ended up meeting a girl on the beach um, uh, when I was finishing up at the University of Miami and. You know, I, I listened to the, I drank the Kool-Aid and I ended up marrying her. But, <laughs> okay. But anyway. <laughs> what, I, what were you landing on the beach when you saw no, this beautiful I mean, she woman? She was walking around and I mean, that was. Did you jump off the pier and go run after no, I was, her? I saw must, her from I'm, afar? I must have said something like, uh, and this is where I learned. What was, what was don't your believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. <laughs> but, so what was your pickup line back in the day? Um. Uh, um, oh God, I remember two awful ones I heard. This one place we used to buy liquor from. This was far out west of where I lived. Like tonight, we dream together. They walk like this when they walk. Tonight, you can't look at the girl. Tonight, we dream together, or I forget what the other. One. I never said that shit. You know, I'd say something <laughs> You'd nice say it like, to each other. Yeah, like, like you know, you're a nice looking girl. Can I buy you a drink? You know, or something like that. Or oh, that's too tame for you. Yeah. Oh no, I was I was always a gentleman. That's there are two things you had to do. First of all, you had to at least for a couple hours convince these girls that you were a human being. So, you know, in the end, when they couldn't believe what a bastard you'd become, I mean, it was something. You know, there was some juxtaposition there, and always be nice to their parents. Right. No. Yeah, I mean yeah. that was we just that was respect. You just yeah, didn't act any no, other way. So, okay, I want to yeah. Go, let's go I'll, back to the pier. Yeah, stuff. I was going to ask about the pier. So if you catch a hundred pound tarpon on the pier, you're walking back to the beach, right, to land that fish because there's no way to unhook that tarpon from the pier. What we used to do at the end, it was we had we knew when we had its nose out of water, we pulling into where it was absolutely immobilized, right. where it was like popsicled, boom. You know, I give. We'd reach down and we'd pop the mono and leave the hook in his mouth. Just, re- just they were always hooked right there. Yeah, just yeah, break it yeah. off. So for Big Snook, would you send a net down? Yeah. At the end, we had nets. We didn't have them in the beginning. I used to jump off the pier. That pier was, I caught a real big snook on a fly rod. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
on anglins one time and basically, you know, jumping off the pier, the thing ran down the surf. How high t- was that pier? Um, in one place, it wasn't too bad. Uh, it, it There were different incarnations, and it always depended on what the surf had been like for a year or two previous and stuff. Now, those other piers, now you look up there, starting with Deerfield, you were way up there. One of these chapters in this new book, I've received considerable uh, notice, considerable interest. People want to know about a Deerfield Pier, and I, I think there have been four piers there. I remember the first time I ever walked on there. I remember fishing there in high school. Um, my stepfather worked, he, I said he was a saloon keeper. He also used to manage Pal's captain's table, the cove. And I remember he dropped me off and uh, the day Kennedy was killed, I remember catching a kingfish out there. But there was nobody else on the pier. It's kind of a poignant, you're sitting there. I remember the day, I'll never forget. Nobody forgets where they were the day that Kennedy JFK was, was shot. You know. Well, how how would you get your bait, and how would you keep it alive up there? Okay, there were different things. First of all, before the standard sabiki of today, we used to use gold hook rigs, and we used to get in the beginning. We got number, uh, well, eighty nine eagle claw size twelve. There was another one that was silver. We got from California. We had a little dipsy on the bottom. Um, the very earliest ones they got had a piece of twine tied, or a piece of yarn tied on them. Then we started making our own. Then we started making them, or the people in the shop, the old lady that was in there, with these little tiny long shake blued, um, you know, like number 12, like, what would you call them, brim hooks? The fish bit those. Uh, but anyway, um, so yep. you had bait next to the bridge, and you would you would throw a barrel sinkler out there, like with yeah, a subiki yeah. rig, and you catch your own bait. We also used to chum goggle eyes. We also used to fish uh, on different piers. The goggle eyes used to come into the umbra of the lights at night, right. and we used to throw quill rigs or feathers and catch them. We used to have big garbage can aerators on wheelie carts and stuff. We used to take them and sell them to the uh, charter boats. Right. We had a great trick we used to do. This is a good tale. We, nobody knew about Kobe. They called them lemon fish and everything, and very few people realized how good eating they were. But uh, eventually a cadre of people got woke on this, and they used to come to Hillsborough Inlet to wait for the boats, Johnny Whitmer and Bolo John, to come whipping around the inlet from the north there and coming in, you know, with waiting for Kobe to clean. We used to do, we'd be fishing off Deerfield Pier. We'd either use balloons or we'd do whatever we had to do. We'd balloon a shark bait out. And oh, the sharks were crawling up the walls out there. What kind of sharks? All kinds. Big. Yeah. Ha- I have a picture. I don't show it because I, it's the chagrin that will follow me. But we used to catch, once in a while, we'd catch in a, a huge, like a dusky. I mean, like a 400-pounder. He had four or five of these enormous Kobe's, 40-pound plus following him. There was a guy that worked in the shop at, at Deerfield named Jimmy Wise. He would shut the shop, and he'd take a box of these. Uh, he used to get squid. That was I forget the name of the company, Monterey Squid Company. He'd throw them in the in the shrimp tank and thaw them out. The pier was closed down. He'd run them out there, and we all had foros with like straight eighty on there and a big hook and drop it down. And he's Kobe. He'd go, Ooh. you know, and get them on a gaff and. Gaps break. We'd take these cobias and we'd get them. We had a great big, I guess, 
must have been a 200-quart cooler back then. And we used to clean them. And we'd get them on ice. And before we'd go home that night, then the next morning, the one guy that owned the surf shop up there right by the pier he had a set of whites. And we used to go like at 11 o'clock, knowing that the, the charter boats were coming in, race for Hillsboro Inlet. Hey, people, you know, and up, you know, with his captain's fit on. And they're buying, and I mean, we sold them the fresh Kobe at the right price and everything, but we'd make a hundred, 200 bucks or whatever and take the money. And the deal was, was split with all the guys that had it. We use it. We took it across the street. First, there was, a, there was a beach burger. Then there was a big daddy's there. And we used to go out and party on it all the time. So, so was, was that strategy to, to shark fish, catch the shark, bring it to shore to have the yeah, Kobe's follow? Yeah, that was part of the thing, but we also liked to catch the sharks. Sure. I caught a, I mean, me. Just I, for fun, you just break them off, cut them off. Well, I, we used to. And, eat them? Yeah, I'm ashamed to say that we, back in those days, you know, bigger was better. A friend of mine and I caught one um, double teaming. We didn't have enough strength, to, and this guy was a real athlete. But on, on an Ocean City 9 of mine, on a cast bait, we caught one, a hammerhead that we ended up walking up on the beach through the swells and the mud and the blood and the beer that weighed with its tail still dragging, with its head and its pectoral still on the ground that bottomed out a 650-pound balance beam scale wow. that you knew was like 1,100 pounds. But it, Off up here. That's, that's bad messaging, so I never show that picture. And we learned later the Lee Wolf thing, a fish is too precious to use only once, and yeah. you know, yada, yada. Or swap, you know. Um, was this a form of of work? Could you selling fish? I mean, was this kind of a, oh, a I job? eventually I, a part time yeah. job before the whole land captain thing came. Oh, to when be? I was in college, I used to sell fish occasionally. So that's, that was your income. Then, well, I mean, I was going. I, I was going to college on a scholarship. So, I mean, I had a break there. Um, I used to work at a little tackle store down the street for a buck thirty five an hour. I always worked. In the summertime, I worked at a steel and aluminum place. Okay. And I worked at a piling and seawall place when I was off. And, I mean, you worked. And I remember I was talking to this guy, Grief. They used to they used to run the Atlantic Federal Savings. My mother had a, a lingerie shop. Nowadays, back then, it was a ladies' foundation shop. She had one there. She had one up in Reading, Pennsylvania. But she'd bring me down on a Saturday. I'd go see the movie in the Gateway Theater or whatever. And I'd run over to the bank. And if I'd made 20 bucks that week doing stuff or whatever, two bucks of that went in the passbook savings. Right. Because you said that um, you came from a good family, but we were poor. Yeah. Well, it's my mother probably suffers from some of the same or suffered from some of the uh, same annoyances that I do. And uh, uh, I never sensed that there was a problem in my family. My father, my real father, Cantner, Franklin Cantner, uh, went on to become the assistant attorney, assistant attorney general in Pennsylvania. But he was in an office with three federal judges or whatever. And uh, I don't know, I never heard any fighting or whatever, but right. my mother wanted to come down here and the next thing I know, I was living here in Northwest Fort Lauderdale. Um, and, and who got you into fishing? They were uh, obviously busy. I remember somebody 
took me. There was an old guy that lived next door, a guy named Nick Nicholson. He used to own an outfit called Hydraulic Jack. He used to take the neighborhood kids a fishing. This is before they developed the southeast section. And we'd fish on the seawall and catch puffers and itty bitty snappers and stuff like that. And we went to the pier. Somebody took me to the pier one night. And I remember one of these strapping kids ended up catching a big ass nurse shark and they turned it loose. God, we used to have some nurse sharks. It'd be 400 pounds out there. Big hobgoblers. I remember one of my nutty guy I knew uh, uh, riding one one time on the 4th of July. He and Phil and Jim Butts and uh, Butts yelling, he's coming for me, Baker. Baker's his <laughs> cue. He's got me. And he grabbed him by the knee and the surf in front of a hundred screaming tourists and shook him like a terrier. And Baker very ceremoniously walked out of the surf blood squirting from arteries and stuff. And he walked to his little Volkswagen Beetle in the sand parking lot and drove him to uh, drove himself to Holy Cross Hospital. Wow. But this was a night fishery, I presume. Not a whole lot. Oh, of, the shark thing? No. Or, I mean, just fishing in general. Was it an all-day deal? Or was oh, yeah, all-day deal. Some things early in the morning, some things late. Big kingfish, when we started fishing piers that had kingfish, which were specifically Deerfield, Lake Worth, Lesser Juno, because it didn't go out far. But the big kings would uh, come in the morning, uh, fishing blue runners and goggle eyes. And then four o'clock in the afternoon, um, you'd start to get the smaller kingfish, you know, 18, 22, 24 pounds. And there in Deerfield in the afternoon in the springtime, while the uh, cigar minnows, while the Spanish sardines started working their way north, and those kings would be pile driving in them and stuff. God, I saw this old couple. I'll never forget this. I made notes on this to have to write on, but. Uh, Grace, and I can't remember her name, Harvey, this old couple. They used to fish down the side. They didn't want to get in all the action. Husband and wife. Yeah, yeah. And he had, he had an old E.L. Baker rod with a bicycle grip for a foregrip and a pen 209 on there with 20-pound line. And I remember they hooked a king. And when you hook them down the side, they, don't, they just come swimming up and stuff like that. There was a guy that used to fish with us, Randy Fisher. And Fisher got it in the gaff and the gaff broke, but that king was over 70 pounds. Wow. And I mean, I've caught him 51 and stuff. I mean, I have some idea about it. But the, and what was the what was the typical kingfish rig? I mean, obviously you had wire. Would you have a barrel sinker? Was it sight fishing? Would you just throw out? and uh, it, all, all those things. Okay, in the beginning, we freelined live bait, uh, strictly freelined hard swimming live baits, goggle eyes, whatever. Up at Lake Worth Pier, we also use something called a ball rig where we'd get a rubber ball. And I think it's, uh, I have a picture of that in that, uh, in the pier fishing section of that uh, ultimate guide. But you'd get a treble and wrap a piece of number 10 wire on. You used to be able to buy these at magic shops and toy. Push that wire through there and you had to be careful not to ram it through and get it, put a bend on it, and put a swivel on it. Now when it relaxed, the swivel would barely stick out of that ball. Now we used to go, and I'd use about, we'd use about a three foot leader. Most of it was mono, and you have a little piece of wire on there. There was only, there were only two kinds of baits that worked there. One was a greenie, a thread herring, and the other was a Spanish sardine. 
Now you had something that you could freeline that wasn't carried off in the strong current you had at piers like Lake Worth and Juneau and Deerfield. You could throw that thing out. It had mass. It'd sit out there, and this mini would be spinning around it, and that king had come and hit that thing. All you had to do was have, now I was fishing a spinning reel by then. All you had to do was have the line on the manual. You didn't have to let them run or anything. Just dip and lift. And you see that line, boy, it's like tearing paper to go through the water and off he'd go. But but that uh, Lake Lake Worth Pier has got the world record permit up there. They, they did for a while. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, I knew the guy that, that had caught it, a guy named George Brooker. But that has been moved, and the current world record was caught in the Port Everglades ship channel by somebody jigging blue runners off the black can buoy. No kidding. I think it's like 56 or 58 or something like that. Right. But, um, no, I've had I've had pretty good. I've caught permit off piers. I mean, we used to get them we used to, while we were fishing for Pompano. And that one guy that used to build rods— I mean, we used to fish in the springtime when we were pompano fishing and the water was losing its color and it was just a slight green. This is before they used to pump the beach. They used to fish a, a big spinner or something with two great big sand fleas on big hooks, you know, so as not to straighten out and throw it out. And we used to call them so as to keep like a secret from me. We called them Malibus. And those permitted get on there. You know, I'm talking 35 pounds and stuff and scream that thing. But you had to be sure you didn't need to have too much stuff hanging off there because England's Pier, in the old days, we had coral heads sticking up alongside it. And you had to literally- Weave your way Well, you or the fish would, or let the fish cut away. Now, the one thing we had at England's that I will never live to see the likes of were some enormous tarpon. You know, the all the largest tarpon ever decked was a 350-pounder that was netted in Hillsborough Inlet. Right. Okay. In Hillsborough Inlet? Yeah, Hillsborough. Yeah. I think it's 380, 350 or 350. Oh, my God. 350. Yeah. I had, when I was, I remember, I was a senior in high school, and we used to walk one of the tricks we used to have. I mean, mackerel were, who cared? You know, there are millions of them. And they weren't all these little bitties. I mean, they were... I was walking out about a two-pound mackerel for cudas, and always the same. Boom, the cuda comes up, cuts the tail off, swims around the circle. Boom, he grabs the head, let him run, 40-pound test, hook him. And we catch the cuda, and, of course, we throw the cuda back in the water. And I, I've got some stories to tell you about that and about giant amberjacks going, trying to eat the cuda. But all of a sudden, I see this thing coming. Andy, I shit you guys not. It was a tarpon. This thing had to be, I mean, I, I knew the distance between the pilings. And this thing was like 11 or 12 feet. And it came up like Mr. Creosote eating a thin mint. And it went, and it sucked this two, two and a half pound mackerel down. And he started to swim off. And I had a pen 68 in this. And I said, I've been, me, me, me. And it started running. And this thing came out of water and God, there was eight feet of it out of water, and the fin wasn't even out. And the, the 
stunned mackerel hits the water and I'm reeling it back. And here comes a little one with it coming up, wanting to see, wanting to see, wanting to see, and doesn't do anything. And I had, I had guys looking over my shoulder. I had 30 guys that saw it. I mean, that tarpon, God, you could have, you could have driven a motorcycle in its mouth. I mean, that was the biggest one. I saw one like that in the Keys one time on the bridges. We had that. Um, so you used to fish the bridges in the Keys as well? All the time. Which was your favorite bridge down there? Oh, really? Seven Mile. Yeah, I came. It started up north. It started with Indian Key, and then it moved further south, Whale Harbor. I had Anglin, this guy I mentioned. He had and another guy, these older guys, a guy named Eric Cartwright. They have a picture somewhere of them holding a permit. Now, these guys are not like basketball players, but they're big guys. And they each have their hand in the gill of this permit, and the tail is bent on the ground. Wow. And, I mean, it had to be 94 pounds. I mean, there was no— t- Nine, 90 pounds. Or something like it. it. was just enormous. Nobody cared. They, they snag-hooked them back then. I snagged right. a tarpon one—I mean, a permit one time. There was a trick to it. You had to find the school swimming, and you'd find a little hillock where there was a bunch of soft sand. And— if it was real shallow, you threw the snag hook down hard, so you boom, and hit the bottom and make a little sand puff. You had your reel locked up and stuff, and the permit would come over and start rooting out. And they go through up and under, and you have to take the reel out of gear, snag the line, put the reel back, and pass the rod under two or three times. But we did that, and then, you know, that we used to snag rays and stuff, and after a while, that, you know, we. You grew came, up. Came of age. You know? Came of age. Yeah, we didn't you do grew, that anymore. You grew up. Yeah. Right? We didn't, we didn't. And, you know, the older you get, you know, I started thinking about this. I, I wasn't at war with any of these fish, and it's the same thing with the shark. Now, there's some stuff I like to eat. I really, I like pompano, and that's at the end of my life, I fished for pompano, not commercially, for me. Right. Well, yeah. let's, let's go back to the question sure. I have here a little bit with okay. the land captain thing. Okay. You know, the question is about where to fish. And if you live near the ocean, boats might be uh, unaffordable. Um, some people don't like the ocean. They're scared of boats. What was your option? You, do you just like fishing on land better? Did boats scare you? And I know you had some incidents. Uh, yeah, no, no. The, the incidents were after I was doing it. Uh, no. So you I, did buy a boat. You tried the Oh, yeah, party. yeah, yeah. I had a, a couple of boats, I guess, in my time, and a canoe and uh, other stuff and going out with people in their boats. And I did, you know, I went with people and worked as a mate. And I had a lot of fun. I worked for Scott Boyd down at Boyd's, and he was a first-class mate. And I learned all the tricks. And back before a lot of people were doing it, I was catching Wahoo. I mean, a substantial number of them. I like to eat them, that kind of stuff. But the deal about the pier... I mean, I really, if if I was going to fish for a living, I didn't want to get into what was back then, probably a $35,000 proposition when I was coming out of this insurance business that as much as I liked the company, I hadn't made a lot of money there. So it was an expensive um, Well, yeah, it was, it, yeah. And, you know, I know the stuff and about memo billing and all this other kind of stuff. But, you know, the, the one thing that I was also, and I should have, paid attention to this, you know, once you do for one and you can't do for somebody else and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And I just didn't want to do it. Right. 
Didn't you sink a boat? Did that scare you? Oh, I, I did more than once. Yeah. How'd you sink these boats? Oh, we were we were fishing in the port one time, or outside the port, and one of these big honkers came by with these boats, and it absolutely flooded the boat out. That was right inside the port. And I was able one to- One of the freighters? Yeah, so, or, or no, one of these, just a big yacht. Sport, sport, sport boat. Yeah, yeah, there was, that happened a couple of times. Uh, but anyway, um, got a toad off the beach, and oh, I remember the one of them, uh, that was right north of the jetty. I remember that, and I can't remember exactly what happened. We I, didn't, I never had a bilge pump. The only way I could do it was get the boat up and plane and pull a plug and hope he can, <laughs> hope he can find a plug. That's probably I think, why. I think I'd boats. become a land captain myself after no, all that. But oh, I mean, no, that would scare the shit out of you. I'm no, but we used to have, but we had good fishing there where I lived down there at the tennis club. And it was inexpensive. You, you just did it. Yeah. I mean, who'd have thunk it? I mean, I actually, I booked, I don't know how many charters from Mullet there at the tennis club. Yeah, Fly you, fishermen, yeah. I mean, they're paying me hundreds of dollars a day to go fish for mullet. Only the land captain. Only the land Figure out how to tie it, a fly that would work on mullet. It's only, listen, it's all perception. It, it, you don't have to be good. You just have to let people think you are. And <laughs> I think that's it with the writing. And all this, all this, hi, I'm this, I'm here, I'm there, you know, that some of these and I see a lot of this, and I think it's where we had some problem with that lady book. Um, you really, people look for substance, and after a while, you've got to say something that matters. They got Somebody has to learn something. Right. Or else, you know, you're missing your point. And I say these things that sound kind of corny, but... It's oh, true. How lucky I've been. Well, here's one of the things that I've got to ask you about your writing. You said that all the years you spent writing magazine articles pre prevented you from becoming a great writer. Yeah, I, I talk truly, about that. I truly believe that. I I wrote, uh, and they were always happy to take it. I don't know how many, but I'm sure hundreds upon hundreds of articles for numerous magazines, and my. Data was always correct. I researched everything and I did a good job. But I think it was Hemingway that said, reportage is good, but just don't do too much of it. You know, right. file and dispatches from uh, the Balkan front, you know, a little bit. But sooner or later, if you want to tell a story, tell a story. You know, sit down and write a farewell to arms or write for whom the bell tolls or whatever. And I spent so much time you know, with these take two turns of chenille and call me in the morning uh, stories that, you know, I I don't know if I have any juice left now and I'm at an age that writing as a, as a pursuit, as a sport, if you will. Well, you've, written, well, you've written five books here, uh, A Net Full of Tales with Tommy Green, The Ultimate Guide to Fishing South Florida on Foot, uh, which is a great book, Backwater Flies from Swamp to Surf, 50 Women Who Fish, in this book here, Hot Licks, Peacocks, and Pricey Perfume. Yep. Tell me about this book right here. Okay, all right. Well, first of all, the Hot Licks is I grew up when, you know, da -na -na -na, I won't be fooled again. I mean, music and rock and all that stuff. Uh, price, uh, peacocks, well, I that was in my time that... They came on the scene uh, from when Alan Zaremba, when they were first stocked out here uh, in South Florida. 
And of course, it was inevitable that I would eventually end up going to uh, Brazil and fishing for them. And uh, oh, I had a great time. I wouldn't take a chance going down there now. What about the pricey perfume? Where's that coming? I like them. I, I I had a weakness for the cleft ever since I was a young boy. I, I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> well, are you haunted by words or stories, or both, as I, a, as a writer? It's both. I first of all, you have to tell a story, but as far as the words, I mean. You know, read. It's real easy. We don't. You don't even have to look the stuff up anymore. All you have to do is Google stuff. You know, in the first couple of meanings. You know, uh, as far as putting them in there. But, you know, speak in declarative sentences where possible. Avoid adverbs. That's one thing. Uh, you know, uh, certainly modifiers. If you're going to write cookbooks, you have to talk about. Uh, you know. With a that, and you can speak in the passive voice, but active voice gets a lot more action. But the um, the story, you need the story, mm-hmm. and with the fiction, you need to you need to analyze. You you really need to give some thought to what you want to think about. The thing I was telling you about the growing pains in a, a, a city that you know whatever it's. I, I really searched, and the title is the last thing I come up with always. I mean, I have a folder every time um, something hits me, I go ahead and enter in the folder. When you were writing all these magazine articles, you were getting paid. Yeah. But were you frustrated and aggravated? Like, I, I want to ski the big mountain, I'm stuck on the bunny slope. Scenario, yeah, yeah, and and always what I wanted to do, and I only, I only ever made it once, was they always had the editor had a column, and somebody would have a back page story. It was one of the in-house guys. Waterman, yeah, Waterman, and I wanted to. I was friends with him, and he and I used to speak all the time, but I wanted to get that. And the only one who ever gave me a shot was the old. Saltwater Sportsman, and I wrote one in the back. Remember, they paid me a thousand bucks for it. Titled Old Blue, it was about it was a true story, and it was about a blue heron that came out and would come out. My friend Pete Philly and I um, saved its life on Anglin's Pier, and it would come every night and come sit next to us on the railing. This great big monster. No, we had what we used to do. Let me give you the background. This is the new pier. And right before you got to the tee, they had a, a well, uh, a fish uh, cleaning thing. And it had a saltwater wash. What we used to do is just take a brown paper towel and stick it in the wash, turn the water on, and we'd be out there right by the end. And we'd, we'd bring a bunch of jig pilchards or jig them right there and throw them in there. And you'd have a dozen, two dozen pilchards swimming around there. You know, you need one, take one. And this herring was sitting there. I mean, this heron was sitting there and, and stabbing them and eating them. And the one time somebody had left their gold hook rig there with a sinker there. And of course, he figured, why not? And he got the sinker. And all of a sudden, I hear this racket and this squawk. And, and here's this thing, my Lord. I mean, he must be five foot wide trying to take off with his rod and reel gone through the air. And my friend Pete, who's nutty as I am, and I went out there and he grabbed this thing by its legs 
And we got the, so the rod and reel came back down and I got it and I got him by the, and I was able to get my, and pry his beak open and very, very slowly with all the snot hanging on the line and stuff, I got that rig out of there without burying one of those little hooks in his whatever. Right. And we put him down a squawk, 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 squawk. And I've heard stories about when people did stuff for him where they turn around and spear you right in the brain and stuff. But I that I don't know them to be true. But that guy would come around us at night. And of course we were young bucks. And these girls with tourist girls had come out there and there'd be about 15 or 20 of us sitting down there. We had a couple of cases of beer open and all of a sudden this bird had come down and sit right next to me. I'd be standing there right on the railing. And these girls were like, holy shit, the yeast master. In fact, that's where I, <laughs> tired of the beast master, I coined the term yeast master. <laughs> and that's where the pricey perfume came into play. Oh yeah, no, a lot book. of that. No, I, you know, and I always, I always like girls, and I think a lot of them, I find a lot of these girls I knew when I was a kid who were kind of reconnecting with me with this Facebook. I was always a gentleman. Um, you know, uh, it's, uh, they have nice memories. I always treated them nice and, you know. Uh, well, let's get back to the uh, the back page, you know, writing, you know, the back page for magazines. When did all of a sudden, or if you did come across the point where you'd never want to do that again and you're just going to be an author? Well, I just, uh, listen, I, I, I don't want to shoot myself in the you-know-what because I just finished up an extensive piece of internet writing for Florida sportsmen. And the stories are right as rain. I mean, I put my whole heart and soul, I don't do anything half-assed. So you still enjoy it? Well, I did that for... I mean, like I say, this is a capitalist country and right, sure, you ha happy life, happy wife, happy life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, in and out of the stock market. And I, she does that. And Well, I want to bring it back to fishing. The, the beauty about you, Steve, is you do not discriminate on any fish. I mean, in your, in your book, The Ultimate Guide to Fishing South Florida on Foot, you talk about fly fishing for pickerel and mackerel and panfish, mullet, I mean, all sorts of different stuff. If I hear that there's a great ladyfish bite in Pompano, I'm not going to be the first one racing down there. But you just love, the, your passion for fishing is infectious. Oh, you got to like it. Right, right. That's right. I'm an equal opportunity employer. But I think not only do you like fishing for, you know, the spectrum of fish available, I think you really enjoy and you refine the art of matching the hatch with certain flies and tackle for the to. different species. And your book is just so great because you're not only identifying the fish and telling people how to catch them, but how to tie the certain fly, or this is the fly that works, or this is the rigging that works that you were talking about a little bit earlier you, on the you pier. Ha you have to do that. Yeah, you have to. You have to tell somebody what days to use, how big a jig, how deep to let it sit, how long to set it, let it sit before you twitch it, what to do, different times. Um, there's all sorts of little things. The one about uh, Ultimate Guide, what I really tried to instill in people was, uh, when I talked about the salt marsh, for example, was a dynamic. It's A lot of people think X marks a spot, and that's one of the problems with a lot of these guys 
these Key West guides that would go if they could get on this wreck or that wreck or at this wreck would have kingfish for two months or two weeks of the year. What the deal on the Tamiami depended on how much water was coming down from the north, uh, where exactly you were, where it had been, what the tides are. You were dealing with double diurnal tides like we have here, two highs and two lows. It's something very interesting that people didn't understand about over there. In that reporting area, the, the saltwater portion of the Tamiami Trail, the tides are very, the reporting station is very similar to the Big Bend section of, as you go up to Northern Florida. In other words, you would have, instead of six, 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 you would have four, eight, four, eight, four, eight. And all of a sudden there would be a nodal point where it would switch to eight, four. And what you looked for also, and I have to say to Florida sportsman's credit or whoever did the work for them, they used to guesstimate when the maximum amount of water moved and that made a big difference. And if you incorporate you know, the direction of the wind and stuff. Like, if you're going to fish over there in the Tamiami Trail, if you're going to fish over by um, west of Chukaluski or Port of the Islands, don't go when there's a southwest wind because it blows the water back. It holds the water from, from flowing. Well, it doesn't let it go out. Right. right. You know, ching, who knew? And it's the first thing I would recommend. I used to tell guys that that I would get when I'm going over there fishing, tie up a couple of, buy a couple of muddlers from somebody who's in the fly business and get yourself a composition book and write notes to yourself. Here's where I went, this marker. Here's here's a copy of the, what do you call it? Snip out every month, snip out what the title predictions were so you knew and observations that you made. Tell us a story. When you were fishing over by Tamiami Trail in Naples area, I, I remember reading in your book that you would go over a bridge and see all these dead frogs that were smushed by the cars. And didn't Bill Curtis tell you that there's a, a frog hash that takes place? Oh, for yeah. And we never did anything with it. That was a big deal. It was Curtis and it was this guy, the uh, the original uh, land guide. And they used to wait. Uh, <clears throat> I've been there, incidentally, when that happened. You're driving down the road and here's bunches of these leopard frogs or whatever. They have this migration across the road. And of course, the cars squash them. And the suggestion is that all these big snook lay there waiting. Well, maybe when what he calls crossed the road, the snook weren't laying there because I've sat there and I've used everything I have bought. These little with the little rubber tails and everything else and all kinds of stuff and sat there. Now, I know somebody... I know I have a picture of Curtis standing with somebody that's got like a 25-pound snook there. So there is no doubt in my mind that the process works. It's chum. And if if somebody was throwing Tootsie Rolls in the water long enough, eventually you'd want a long brown fly. <laughs> so to speak, you know, but, but that's... Uh, so you never saw it? I, I, I've been in those, but I, I never saw it where we'd get a fish to bite out of right. it. No, ironically. You know what was really impressive uh, to me, uh, which I'd never seen, was the grass carp. And, <laughs> and we're doing a, this show with you, the grass carp show, the Siamese grass carp. Yeah. I mean, uh, you've got the ficus berries falling out of the trees, and you got these 30-pound carp feeding on these berries on the surface. And I've... So I, the, 
It was unbelievable. How when did you first find that? And mm -hmm. tell me about when you refined tying the grassberry. In in all fairness, I didn't know Mark Croker really well, but there is a debate, and he might have been the one to do it. But uh, it was either he or I who who came up with this. And we put two and two together. We saw the things hit the water. I remember me the first time that I knew for sure. Um, I was out walking Griffin Road looking for a little tarpon, which, you know, you get out there around 82nd Avenue or whatever it was. You know, it was pretty much a given. And I'd stepped in a red ant's nest. And I mean, boy, that'll light you up if you get bit bad enough. And I was sitting under a tree. I'd swatted them all and everything a ficus tree, and you didn't think, and there were a lot more ficus trees a couple of years ago, but a wind, the wind came and blew, and pop, 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 all these things. And I mean, I had a ficus tree in my yard when I was a kid, and I saw these berries hit the water, and I go, oh, these big submarines are up, and blah, 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 blah. my Lord. And the first thing I tried to do is, well, I grabbed a couple of berries and stuck them in my pocket and hauled ass home. And the first thing I did, was I had some purple deer hair. Now the purple deer hair went to shit when all of a sudden um, the people who made fly tying materials, they were all, it was all about steelhead, you know, optical bright colors and the bright stuff. I mean, that's like throwing a cherry bomb in on top of with these berries and they wouldn't bite that. Uh, so what I used to do in the beginning, I used to spin deer hair and I used to make, you know, with a, I think I used a number 10 um, dry fly hook or whatever. I forget which size, or maybe it was a 3903 Sprout. But then I got on the idea and I found a friend of mine. First, what he found, his college professor, you could buy, it was a composition of, of cork dust and styrofoam dust, which, and, and, paint them, but the problem was the solvents in the paint would make the stuff run. Then they had pure cork balls. And I used an, a, a Gamakatsu SC 15 hook size, I believe six, it says it in there. And the trick, whenever you're gluing, uh, trying to, uh, you know, a hook like that, don't forget about wrapping it with thread because even the unwaxed threads have the stuff slipped. I would just take, you'd have the slit in there, you open with a whatever, and just epoxy glue. I didn't use this, what do you call it stuff. Used epoxy and just glue it in there. Then when it would dry, I would give it a coat with white gesso, which is what artists use to paint their backgrounds before they, and I'd, I'd go over that with, uh, or if I didn't use the gesso, the Avon people made a, a nail polish. The trade name was, uh, or the color was Cherry's Jubilee, and I used to do them up with that. And it looked like a ripening grassberry. I used to drive down that green space out there west of like 100th Avenue, and I always had binoculars, and I could see if I had a customer. I could look at the tree, and I could evaluate uh, you know, what level of whatever. And, you know, I'd make notes, you know, like this one almost, this one another week, this one. And when I'd see these things hitting the water and it, like ficus is a communal plant. One branch is doing something while another one isn't, but you'd make a note and 
all you had to do, and I'd pick the ones that were the shortest shot for my customer. They get that fly to hit that without lining them or slapping the water real hard. Bloop, boop, raise the rod. There he is. Nikki was unbelievable. Right. I, I, I mean, did that with you guys one day. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You're really little. Yep. Yeah. But yep. these fish are like 30, 30 pounds. Oh, yeah. There are they, some of that big. But it pounds. was so cool to drive down Griffin Road and, and look for a tree that was dropping berries and had rising fish. And we did see it. I, I mean, I, seriously, I was so excited. Yeah, it's like a trout eating a dry fly. Absolutely. I remember, exactly. I think Nathaniel came came up and did that with you too. Nathaniel yes, he did. Linville. Yes, he did. Absolutely. With his girlfriend before right. they got married. Yeah. Yeah, he got a hit. He, he, it was a hoot for him. He'd come up. Valentine uh, was getting in the something or other. Lady of the Year Award. You're very nice, incidentally. And he, he was uh, also. But anyway, uh, yeah, we did that. Now there's new stuff under there. Now we have these Mozambique cichlids. God, they smell as bad as an angel fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about Andy Town. All right. Okay. When I was a kid, a wee bairn. Now I came down here in 1953. I was seven. Okay. That's a long freaking time ago. But Fort Lauderdale, I couldn't call it Lauderdale, ended. We had Route 84. There was none of this 595 stuff. Route 84 used to dead end on, I believe it was Highway 27 out there. Or, or maybe then there was nothing out in the glades. It dead ended there. And you go a little bit south, and there was this combination bait shop, bar, you know, kind of redneck hangout called Andytown. And we used to get some real characters there. I remember I went, I took the hunter safety course and uh, we were out there one time and I was shooting targets and doing stuff. But I remember the one thing was before I ever knew Vicky, I kind of knew her boyfriend, a guy she was going out with. They were older. And <clears throat> there was some stud that used to come down here once a year. He used to bring a monkey used to bring a chimpanzee and they put gloves on his hands and his feet. And the deal was, you know, a sporting gentleman, uh, you'd pay $5. And if you could stay in the ring with the monk for like, I don't know, five minutes or something, they'd give you 25 bucks. And everybody I know, and Vicki, I asked her about it uh, yesterday, including her boyfriend, the monk beat the shit out of him. <laughs> don't let you know there's a, there's a lesson in this and it's don't fool with shit that's strange to you you know you never know a monkey god <laughs> well steve um you know it's quite obvious uh you're a brilliant man i don't you're, know about yeah you are you've got um such a big spectrum with your writing five books and the magazine articles the peers the land stuff boating uh, your knowledge with fishing and, and how to catch um, a variety of fish is just second to none. And I'm flattered uh, you say that. I no, appreciate it's, it. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, I've, I've been around a long time, and I, I've, I know a lot of captains, a lot of anglers, but uh, the breadth uh, that of your expanse is quite amazing. Um, and with that being said, I just want to let you know how, how lucky I am to have you as a friend. Thank you. Uh, Likewise. And and uh, your contribution to the sport is really out, outstanding. And I just want to thank you Appreciate uh, it. on all levels. Appreciate that. You're Appreciate a good pal. that very much. Thank Thanks you. so much thank for you. coming right. on, Steve. Thank you. Really appreciate thank you. it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Always. 
Thank you. You notice no elbow bumping. <laughs> yeah, we don't do that. No mask, no elbow bumping. You're right. I've seen Steve's life when he was on top of his guiding game, and now all these years later, he struggles with his Parkinson's. Yet Steve remains upbeat, writing diligently, and is never far from a good laugh. He's a true inspiration. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon. What is so it's just a ride, a ride, just a ride, just a ride.